you recording? Uh, always, Luke. Always recording. Always be recording, <laughs> they say. No, they don't. You know what's uh, good about podcasting, Luke? Let me tell you what's good about podcasting. Okay. You get to talk to people that you've wanted to talk to for a long time and haven't been able to. Would you like to do a podcast? Yes. <laughs> Great. Now we get to talk. This is a, is this a segue or just really bad chat? It's bad chat, man. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're leading in because Paul Gaby, I know, is someone that, you know, I guess today that you genuinely have wanted to speak to for a while. I know I have. Um, but it was just bad chat. That's disappointing. We could treat it as a good segue, though, if you like. Sure. But I'd rather hear from you from, we haven't done a podcast for a while. What is new in your world since we last spoke to Paul Waterson? Well, I've been working hard on a campaign for consumer and trade behaviour around going out in the mm. new world order. And right. I suppose what sits at the heart of it is this understanding that we have, over the longest period of time, designed, built an environment where when you go out, you're designed to meet and engage socially. And now we're having to find a way of interrupting that experience at some level to keep people slightly distant when they're out. So it's quite counterintuitive to years of years of evolution. So it, and the government messaging, uh, I would say, has kind of been quite prescriptive as is fair, but it also is not necessarily working uh, as you, you, we know. So there's a job we think to do to try and change behaviours and that is just something that can happen, but it just takes the right kind of idea, the right type of time, the right type of focus from uh, the industry uh, to to kind of go at it. You know, think about mm. smoking in venues, for example, and what the world, yeah, how that, that change was that came about. So that's what I've been mm. keeping busy on. What about yourself? Uh, on that, it's very interesting. I was chatting to a client, and I actually haven't thought about this, but I was chatting to a client yesterday or the day before who runs big venues. And he was saying, you know, the change from 500 to 300 was very um, impactful for them, obviously being in big venues, not from a, only from a revenue perspective, but just from that procedural topic. Like having spent as long as the venues have been open, which in, in some cases is like over 20 years, encouraging venue managers to find a way to get more people in, it's, it's the complete antithesis of that now. You're trying to encourage them to, to, to not just make do, but like kind of encourage less people to come inside and really stop them from doing all the things that you wanted them to do for a long time, stand up, dance, have fun, um, socialise with, you know, with other people at the tables, for example. Like it's it's just the complete reverse psychology on hospitality, which um, sucks. Um, mate, with me, a new is, uh, I don't know, it's, uh, you know, the Melbourne thing is, is for us has had a really big impact. It's been... Um, probably the most challenging period of this, um, well, that's actually incorrect, not being able to trade at all and having all of our work disappear was probably the most challenging. <laughs> but but since things started to reopen, um, you know, last two weeks, I think it's been, been the most challenging. Um, but we had a really good month last month. We grew, brought new people in, um, yet to see whether that was a boneheaded decision or not, but <laughs> time will tell. Uh, but, uh, mate, more importantly, today's guest, known to, I've already mentioned his name, Paul Gaby, um, heads up proofing company in Singapore. We're, we're essentially a global company now, offices here right across Asia. Um, you, you know him well, I believe, also. 
Uh, we haven't actually met in person, but we've been in correspondence for the last year. I guess we were in a post pre-COVID world going to be doing a conference called The Appetizer in Melbourne uh, in May, um, which has now been deferred till next year, but uh, which is really around the future of Hotel F&B. And uh, Proof particularly has just become synonymous with award-winning bars in mm. Asia, hasn't it really? It's a bit like they open a bar, it's almost... You know, no one's going to be surprised when it turns up on a best list very shortly thereafter. And yeah, and then uh, so that reputation, and obviously, there's a whole bunch of Australians that you and I both know uh, in that initiative. And yeah, it's uh, been just an interesting one to watch over the years. So I was very yeah. keen to chat to him. Yeah, I am. Um, obviously, we're very well connected with Jace Williams, who I used to work with. You know him through the industry. Um, I was over in Singapore months ago. I sat down with the general manager of Proof and Company, um, and she spoke to us, spoke to me about eco spirits, um, and that was kind of, I guess, the primary objective for getting Paul on today was to just hear about that initiative because it is, it is really, um, I think, groundbreaking within the premium spirit space. I don't know if anyone else that does what they're doing, um, an environmentally focused initiative, but um, you know, pretty exceptional idea. So. That was the main reason I wanted to get him on to talk about that, but we'll obviously cover a pretty broad range of topics, so might as well just jump in. Sounds good. So, Paul, uh, you are the co-founder and chief executive officer for Proof & Company, which is one of Asia's leading, Asia Pacific, sorry, leading independent spirits companies. Um, under your leadership, Proof & Company has been ranked one of the top uh, 500 fastest growing companies in Asia Pacific, which is no mean feat, and that's through Financial Times. Um, and you've developed uh, eight offices across the region and a portfolio of leading independent spirits. You are the world's most awarded drinks consultancy. Now, that's obviously a good start, but I will go on. Um, Paul, you have been named um, one of 35 creative industry leaders shaping the future of Singapore. Um, by Peak Magazine, um, a member of the Generation T, which is a group of leading entrepreneurs and creative shaping Asia's future. Uh, I note there it's not just talking about hospitality, but um, talking about Singapore, you know, quite broadly and um, and Asia. And uh, that's through Tatler Magazine. And then a thought leader by Rob Report Singapore. And you're also a founding board member of the Singapore Cocktail Bar Association. Did I miss anything? <laughs> That's uh, that's quite comprehensive, and uh, thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, that welcome. Just just the word slouch, you know. Just the slouch. <laughs> so I guess um, that leads me to the first question: How did you end up where you are now, doing what you're doing with Proof and Company? You know, what was the? Um, I guess just take us through, even as far back as you'd like to start, whether it's school or whatever it might be. Sure. I mean, it's an industry in which we all, many of us, find our way here through unusual or surprising uh, paths, you know, hospitality. And I, I never setting out. I was a young kid, grew up in Vancouver in Canada, you know, on the West Coast there. Um, never set out or expected a career in hospitality. I uh, went off to law school after university and started study, uh, my career in New York City back in the early 2000s and, and was actually just a young, overworked lawyer uh, doing a lot of hours. And, but it happened to be at the time, you know, if you go back to 2001 and 2002, which was the very early years of the cocktail era, the modern cocktail era in, in New York. And at that time, 
Yeah, New York and London, plus an early scene in Australia, if you go back to 02, 03, was really beginning to bubble and, you know, get into cocktails in a serious way. And as a, as a young lawyer who only, you know, had a few hours off uh, a week, but wanted to spend them well, I really, you know, was impressed with this whole new approach to drinking. You know, I was a kid who grew up in Canada and a, a Ryan Ginger was a sophisticated, as sophisticated <laughs> as we got as far as drinking. Uh, and then here you are, you know, summer of 2001, Milk and Honey, the original location, a bartender that doesn't need a menu, that cuts his own ice, uh, that asks you what flavors you like. It was just an eye-opening experience. And, you know, that, that, that career led to a corporate life where we did investing in venture capital. And that brought me to Asia in 2007 with uh, two business partners, Spencer Forhart and Snehal Patel, who helped co-found Proof & Company. Uh, with me. And really being in Asia in 07, we just realized we missed that modern craft cocktail culture, what, what we now at Proof & Company really embrace as a second golden age um, of fine drinking. And, and being in Singapore in 2007, 2008, we realized there was, uh, you know, it's a foodie city. There was a very strong economy, high purchasing power, um, all of the ingredients necessary to become perhaps a cocktail city. Uh, but very few modern cocktail bars. It was just getting started. And so uh, the whole journey began with a small sort of mid-career decision. Let's open a cocktail bar. It was 28 <laughs> Hong Kong Street here in Singapore. We never planned to do more than that. Uh, it was just to bring some of what we love from America, you know, the American approach to hospitality, very warm, full of personality, uh, you know, focus on smaller independent producers, uh, you know, understated garnishing, just, you know, a focus on quality and, and craft. Um, and we said, let's take a break from our corporate careers and open a cocktail bar. Uh, and that was 2010. And we opened 28 Hong Kong Street in 2011. And, uh, Ten years later, I'm talking to you gentlemen today. It, it's been quite a journey and, and very unexpected. And I, d I don't think I'm alone in, in, in the industry and people who never expected to perhaps end up with a, a, a career here, but but have really come to love the industry. I think you and Mike share the origins of beginning as lawyers and ending up in, um, you know, different <laughs> places, let's put it that way. Um, 28 Hong Kong Street, and I know it, Mike knows it very well, um, but for those that don't, um, some of the accolades, I guess, would you be able to share them in terms of just positioning? How, I guess yeah, I mean, how, how formative. Was, sure, it was formative for us. It was our first foray into hospitality, and and we were you know first time owners operators, um, and you know brought across a really great barman, Michael Callahan from San Francisco, to be a founding GM and head bartender. He brought the operational experience we were missing. Um, but 28, really, it was not the first craft cocktail bar in Singapore or Southeast Asia, um, but it was the first American uh, craft cocktail bar and certainly one of the first to embrace independent spirits. And, and looking back, I think our timing was just very fortunate. It was a moment in which Singapore was about to really embrace this sort of modern era of drinking. And uh, in our first year in 2012, we made the world's 50 best bars list and, and stayed on for seven, eight years. Um, we've had a wonderful young opening team. Michael led and developed them. And, and 28's gone on to probably nurture two generations or three generations of young bartending talent into the Singapore scene that many of which now own their own own bars and have developed. Um, so it's just a little cocktail bar that that uh, tries to take 
great care of its guests and, and really represent everything that we loved about craft. Um, and it's going into its 10th anniversary next year and, you know, has had, you know, more awards than we ever could have hoped for. Uh, and to this day is busy. Well, you know, COVID aside is, is just as busy as it's ever been. And, and for those in Australia, I mean, the bar that we, uh, we kind of, see as most analogous to 28 Hong Kong street is black Pearl in Melbourne. Um, you know, good, really energy, you know, great hospitality. And there's a bit of a kinship between 28 and, and black Pearl in that sense. And I, I think we've always looked and admired what they do and said, it's a little bit of what we try to do up here in, in Singapore. It'd be good to get a bit of an overview of the proof business as it stands in terms of other bars that you've consulted on or continue to consult on uh, or, or have an interest in, I'm not sure, but, uh, but and then you know the consulting business. Can you just kind of for people who aren't as familiar with your businesses um, as as maybe me? Sure. Um, you know, after opening Twenty Eight Hong Kong Street, the the decision point came. Do we? You know, it was so well embraced by the community in Singapore. The decision was: do we open more bars, or um, do we go on to something that's perhaps a bigger scale? And that's that's where Proof and Company. Uh, came out. It was um, the idea that in this modern era, um, in this modern era, um, you need access to quality ingredients, to good barware. You know, I take examples like the Maraschino cherry, you know, in 2012 in Singapore, the only ones available were the nuclear uh, orange ones that, you know, we all remember from the pre-craft days. So Proof and Company was set up on the basis of our experience with um, 28, which was that to embrace the second golden age of fine drinking bars and operators in, in Singapore and beyond would need access to great ingredients and, and quality spirits like plantation rum and things that were very much popular in Australia or the US or Europe. And, and so proof was set up with a simple mission in, in hindsight, which was to help spread the second golden age of fine drinking in, in Singapore and eventually beyond um, as a distribution company at its core. But you asked Mike about consulting and it, you know, it's unusual for a distributor to have a, a substantial consulting arm and, and do a lot of bar development projects. And, and I think we just are a reflection of the environment in which proof was born and that um, a lot of our clients weren't as experienced as operators in Sydney or Melbourne at the time in developing, you know, a modern craft program. And so just having great ingredients, say Luxardo cherries or plantation rum alone was not sufficient. Uh, we had to work on building the awareness and the, the advocacy and the, the passion for quality and craft and independent, you know, spirits and ingredients. And so Proof Creative, which is what our consulting division is called, which is led by Jason Williams, who you gentlemen know, very well and you know was working in Sydney before he came up to Singapore in 2014 for us um, was really set up on day one when proof was founded to provide that access to expertise to experience that operators and clients would need as they elevated their own bar programs and embraced these these principles so you know fast forwarding eight or nine years now proof creative is uh, a team of eight or nine um, really experienced barmen, bartenders, spirits evangelists, people like Charlie Ainsbury in Sydney. We have Bobby Carey up here in Singapore, also from Australia, um, Tong Egerton in, in, in Hong Kong. And they work with clients, whether that's a wholesale consulting project, you know, a new building, blank piece of paper, from scratch concept, 
uh, or it's helping you know develop a training program for staff um, or help launch a new menu. They, they really take kind of a holistic approach to working with our clients. We generally work only with clients who are also working with Proof & Company on a broader basis, you know, including spirits and, and, and other things. Um, and the creative team now has about 40 projects underway across Asia Pacific. They're, they're very busy. Uh, we have long-standing clients like Four Seasons Hotels. We've opened four or five bars together now over the last six years. Um, some of the highlights are Atlas, the big gin bar in Singapore that some folks may have heard about, you know, a really grand uh, room. That was a proof creative project starting back in 2014. Um, Manhattan Bar in Singapore, which did very well and was, you know, Asia's best bar for a few years. Uh, but bars overseas, you know, one of my favorites that the creative team has done is a little bar in Hong Kong called the Pontiac, which is a rock and roll neighborhood, uh, unpretentious craft bar that, you know, has just done exceptionally well under uh, leadership of Beckley Franks. Um, and that was a small proof creative project back in 2014. So a wide range of projects for a whole range of clients, whether those are big operators or, you know, small independent owners. I think that's a pretty good overview. And I think you're almost too polite to say, but it's almost, I'd say it this way, where proof goes, like recognition and awards tend to follow. It's not why you set the, the bars up or console on that basis, no doubt, but it sort of becomes synonymous with high quality drinking experience, which, you know, um, critics, punters, industry alike tend to enjoy those environments, uh, uh, particularly the credit card companies who uh, have to uh, charge interest on, on, on large bills that, that, that uh, people like me rack up. Um, well, it's very kind, Mike, but if, if credit is due there, it's, we've had an exceptional group of talent. Jason Williams has done a wonderful job building out and leading that creative consulting function. And over the years, we've just had some wonderful people um, come through that program and, and work with us. And you guys know, great bars are about people, not only in the operating of a great bar, but in designing and developing. And, and I think that track record is more than anything a testament to the wonderful team that Jason has developed and nurtured over the years and, and the work they put out. What are some of the uh, differences, I guess, that you're seeing across, not not in the current time perhaps, but um, talk about pre-COVID because I'm sure we'll talk about COVID at some point, but um, working across multiple different markets, um, are there any kind of, I, I guess, trends, movements or, or just tendencies within consumer markets that you've, you've highlighted as being prevalent? Absolutely. And I'll, to wrap up on the bar projects consulting side, I'll touch on one there first. And then, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, proof is now operating across the big markets of Asia Pacific. China's our, our second largest market after Australia and then Singapore and Hong Kong as one unit after that. Um, markets are different and, and what is trending in terms of venues and concepts, uh, changes market by market. And some of these trends, echo each other that, you know, what's happening in Singapore then eventually happens in Bangkok uh, or, you know, what's happening in Australia perhaps translates to New Zealand eventually. Um, one trend we're seeing, which, which I actually love, is a trend away, not away, but the big glamorous uh, 
chalk and awe bars in a sense. You know, if that's a, an Atlas bar in Singapore, this just wonderful cathedral of drinking, you know, once in a lifetime opportunity to work with a room like that, um, continue to sort of be landmarks in the scene. But what we've seen the last two years in Hong Kong and Singapore especially is the rise of the small bartender-owned bar. So, you know, small venue, one bartender who's maybe trained in one of the pioneering programs, whether that's a 28 Hong Kong Street or a, you know, lobster bar in Hong Kong and gone off to open their own bar. You have the old man uh, in Hong Kong and Singapore that's done very well and is a bartender-owned bar. You've got the best agave bar in Hong Kong, Koa with Jay Khan, uh, is another bartender-owned bar. In Singapore, you've got bars like No Sleep Club, which are opened by Jess Hutch and Yijun, who are doing great. Uh, and that trend towards smaller venues owned by the staff who run them is something that's pretty cool to see. And I think it's one of my favorite trends that we see at the moment up here in Asia with, with bars. Um, a couple other trends that are important and we'll touch on it, I'm sure at some point as we go through the discussion today is sustainability is something that we identified back in 2016 as a, uh, a force we felt would shape the next five or 10 years of the industry. You know, I grew up in the northwest coast of Canada in the environmental movement in the early 1980s. And uh, back then, you know, sustainable was a fringe sort of hippie movement that was quite out there. Um, you know, fast forward 30 years now, sustainability here in Asia, but also in Australia, is a dominant layer of the conversation when it comes to operating hospitality venues, planning uh, and developing, you know, um, hotel chains and things. So sustainability is a trend that we've been investing in and betting on since back in 2016. And then the third one I often mention in, in is localization, the rise of local spirits. When we started Proof & Company in 2012, there was no conversation about a locally produced gin in Singapore or, you know, why doesn't Hong Kong have its own gin? Uh, let alone, you know, China. What about craft gin coming out of China? But mm. now, as you guys, I think Australia has led the way, the rise of the local producer, whether that's in spirits, beer, or wine, um, has been a very, very important force that shaped what people are drinking, what brands are growing quickly, what brands are getting shelf space. Um, and we really see that for the first time in the last few years here in Asia. You know, you're seeing a, a boom in local distilleries that, that echoes what happened in Australia maybe 10 years ago. Yeah, it's, um, I'm interested in your take on that because you, you mentioned obviously quite a few people from our industry who are working in your business and right throughout Asia, America. Um, you know, there's some really top names within the Australian hospitality sector that have headed overseas. Um, we can't seem to hold on to a lot of talent, but the opportunities are bigger. Um, and some of the trends that you've mentioned have been prevalent here for quite some time. I mean, how much do you look to Australia in, in, in what you're doing um, as a guide? Like, do you feel, and this is purely probably for benefit of Australians listening to this, but um, do you feel that we lead in some aspects um, I guess relevant to the to the operations that you're working on. You do to trend start Absolutely. here in some respects yeah. and, and then head out. Absolutely. I mean, I think you know, having started our company up here in Asia, you know, we you know, ten years ago, we looked overseas to inspiration, the most developed and most advanced markets in hospitality, and I put Australia up there. We put Australia up there with Europe and the U.S. It it it's a mature, sophisticated, really experienced hospitality sector in Australia. It's been leading in things like local distilling for many years, way ahead of where we we are in Asia in those aspects. Um, as you mentioned, it's been nurturing and developing 
generation after generation of good hospitality talent, whether that's bartenders, venue managers, chefs, et cetera. Um, sure, exporting some of those overseas, but that just strengthens the Australian brand and hospitality because you have these great ambassadors like Jason uh, who are overseas and represent and you know, you know, spread love for what Australia does in hospitality and, and how you know, Australian hospitality culture has developed. So we absolutely look to Australia, um, not only for talent from time to time, but for inspiration on, you know, best practices. And it's, it's been for Asia, one of the most important influences, I would say. Yeah, I think the talent piece is excellent. Obviously, that's my focus really is is people and we've done a little bit of work in we'll an office in Singapore, no longer, unfortunately, but um uh, yeah, people like Jason kind of have set a, a pathway, I think, for people coming up in the industry. And, and in some ways, this might sound might be the wrong word, but legitimise the reason the reason to get into hospitality because the the opportunities appear global now, or you know, regional within Southeast Asia or Asia Pacific, whatever it might be. So they're they're great role models for for what you can actually achieve through the industry, which I think is really valuable for for where we are. Sure, and it's, and it's perhaps not it's not emphasized enough. One of the the pioneering you know venues in Singapore was Tipling Club back in two thousand eight, and and many of us would say the very first world class modern cocktail program open in Singapore, and that was Ryan Cliff and Matthew Bax, uh, and then trained others you know uh, that came through the program. So you know that seeding of the Singapore market goes back as far as the opening of opening of Tipling Club in 2008. And that was Australian, you know, Australian talent coming up here and, and making a mark right at the very beginning. Um, well, we might just talk about COVID's impact on the, your business, Proof generally. Uh, and I suppose to give it some context, this pandemic's affecting businesses differently around the world and everyone's looking for not necessarily answers, but ideas, inspiration, guidance. Uh, so, as you know, we interviewed, I think, a couple of Singaporeans recently, uh, Mike and um, and Rohit from Dandy Partnership, and it was quite helpful for, for us to hear how Singapore approached the pandemic. So I'm wondering if you'd be happy to share with us a little bit of how COVID impacted uh, Proof & Co and how you responded to it. And I guess maybe a little bit about how the situation is is now in Singapore as well. Sure. Yeah, I think um, we have had the benefit or perhaps the burden of, of being exposed to COVID's impact, starting with China. We actually have distribution in Wuhan and China. So, you know, we have a, a distribution, a wholesale distribution partner in Wuhan, Chris Lauder, our general manager in China, um, you know, called me back on the 22nd of January to give a heads up that this, uh, unusual virus was likely to be a big thing and we had to get in front of it. It wasn't just going to come and go and be just a Wuhan story. Um, and it feels like ever since that day, we've been, uh, you know, responding to and trying to help navigate both the company, but to the extent we can, our clients and, and help, you know, everyone get through this. It's been, you know, it's been a period of, of, as everyone says, unprecedented challenge in the industry. And that's applied to every market that has encountered it, I think, starting with China. You know, China had a, a very, very difficult March and April. Um, we're able to, to very forcefully respond to the outbreak and, and get it under control. Um, but it was an extraordinary period. You know, you have this, this enormous hospitality industry in China that's brought to a standstill for eight 
weeks, a complete standstill. Things like, you know, feeling what Melbourne is going through right now. And so we've watched and worked through it in, you know, in China and Hong Kong and Macau and New Zealand and Australia and Singapore and Malaysia and Thailand. And so having been exposed to COVID's impact on each of those markets, um, I think has been helpful in a sense that it gave us early warning that this was a big deal and would require um, really careful response at a company you know, level in order to stay uh, you know, safe as a company, but also to prepare and help our clients through it. So um, at the moment, things are, are mixed in the region, I would say. Uh, as you all know very well, New Zealand is in good shape and, and in some ways post-COVID um, or, or uh, appearing to be. Mainland China, I'm pleased to report, is back to pre-COVID levels of activity for the most part in hospitality, which means that bars and restaurants are doing um, similar trade to what we saw in December, November 2019, which is a really hopeful story that they've been able to keep it suppressed at a scale like that. Um, Hong Kong has unfortunately taken a step backwards in the last four weeks and gone into full lockdown, um, much like Melbourne is in now. Um, Singapore is as uh, cautiously recovering. Uh, the government uh, got ahead of the virus here and then got way behind and is now taking a very careful approach to reopening. What the government here calls a safe reopening, which is a very staged, very careful reopening. So the current outlook is remain shaky. You know, I'd say that, you know, markets like Hong Kong, the on-trade is down almost 100% for the moment. Um, in Singapore, on-trade's at about 50%. And the highlights are, are New Zealand and, and China. But you know, if there's something I can share that's hopeful, it is that we're seeing as markets come back from it, and, and some of the Asian markets are ahead of, of Australia in the cycle, that as if the reopening is managed carefully, and if it's staged, and if it's, um, you know, comprehensive, the return of trading is perhaps more happens more quickly than we might expect. In, in China, things did come back more quickly than we expected. In Hong Kong, after the first wave, uh, trading did come back um, even more quickly than I expected in May and June. Um, and so that's hopeful. This is going to be a difficult, turbulent up and down period for all of us, I think. But um, I continue to see signs in our markets that the recovery will come. And when it does, um, there's some positive uh, trends in terms of the speed of of, of the the recovery. It's an interesting uh, point there because is somewhere between government restrictions and messaging on the one hand and consumer confidence on the other uh, is how much of the return is dependent on they go hand in hand obviously but like I guess what I'm sa I'm feeling here at least in our markets is that it, it's also you can have a view on what things government can say what things are, what the restrictions are, or what the terms of trading are, but consumers need to feel confident to go back out. And those two things may not necessarily match. So say, for example, right now, uh, as of today, you know, Melbourne's in lockdown, Sydney's not in lockdown, but we're high, highly aware of what's going on in Melbourne. So the impact on hospitality businesses right now is in Sydney is, you know, consumers don't have the confidence at, you know, at the levels they did two weeks ago. Uh, do you, do you, in, in those markets that you're talking about, like, I imagine New Zealand would have a high level of consumer confidence. And is it right to say the market China consumer confidence has returned? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I'm far from a COVID expert, much less a doctor or, or you know, knowledgeable about the public health aspects. But, um, you know, it seems to be in our markets. I can speak to what we've experienced in Singapore over the last 12 weeks is that consumer confidence, it's a good question, Mike, it seems to be very closely linked to the current uh, trend in, in local caseload and, and infection spread. And as soon as it rises, we see a deterioration in people's comfort going out in Singapore. So we're, we're in a, uh, a more stable period for the last three weeks here now where uh, case rates are coming down. We had only one or two in the general community last the last couple of days. Um, and the confidence level is noticeably more robust than it was two weeks ago. But as soon as we go through a period in which there's a spike and the situation gets shaky again, that confidence erodes very quickly. So what's been surprising is how quickly it comes back, but how quickly it deteriorates again. And so that, I think, will be the outlook until there's some form of, of final solution, either through eradication, like New Zealand has been working towards, or you know some level of vaccine or, or combination of vaccine and therapeutics. So, I mean, our, we're preparing for, unfortunately, a reasonably bumpy extended period of sort of a return of confidence but then it's not a final, things don't just linearly get better then. We have to prepare for another downturn and perhaps another setback for a little while. It doesn't mean lockdown, open, lockdown, open. It just means that there will be ebbs and flows in confidence and ebbs and flows in, in the level of trading and hospitality venues. What do you think of this image? Remember those old squeeze boxes, the things that you go, like yeah. the piano accordions maybe, I can't remember, but I feel like it's that kind of market at the moment in you know, it's worse when you go to full extension, but otherwise we're all kind of just having to kind of uh, obviously minimise the the highs and lows maybe um, would be as good as it's going to get. Okay. We'll, we'll talk about eco-spirits in, in, in a little bit, but in terms of the impact of COVID on the non-eco-spirits business that Proof has, is there any innovations or long-term changes to your business model that may have happened as a result, like or innovations that you might hang on to, anything of that nature? For sure. I mean, I think the last six months has been a, you know, anyone who's leading a business or a team through this crisis, if it's not been a, a major period of reflection about what change, you know, might be needed uh, to, to safely get through this, but also you know, um, thrive on the other side. Um, you know, we, we've realized that, you know, in Asia, you know, it may be strange in Australia, but, but for Australians, but in Asia, off-premise, you know, retail channels are very small. They make up less than 15% of the market volumes in places like Singapore and Hong Kong. Um, historically, you know, Proof has been working on independent spirits retail for four or five or six years now. We had the Proof Flat and, and EC Proof and things. We've always believed in the future of of off-premise in the region, but known it was going to take time to mature. And it's been surprising how slowly off-premise has matured in comparison to, you know, the booming cocktail bars. Um, but COVID is, is accelerating that change. You know, we've recently launched both in Singapore and New Zealand, uh, a wonderful craft cocktail, canned cocktail brand called Curatif from Australia that are, are doing some wonderful things with good spirits. Um, that's a, that's an outgrowth of our reflection on where we need to be positioned both for an extended period of COVID 
volatility where people are having to drink at home uh, more than they have in the past, but also perhaps for a changed landscape post-COVID in which we need to, to focus even more on products that consumers want to be consuming at home than they would have in the past up here in Asia. So we're doing the same thing in New Zealand, which is continue to expand our retail focused offering of product line um, and prepare for this this acceleration of home drinking to be, if not a permanent trend, certainly one that that shapes volumes for the next 12 or 18 or 24 months as, as we all move through this. Yeah, is that, John, sorry, is that a trend that's been um, noticeable in markets like China that have recovered um, and are achieving numbers like they had previously? You see, is, is retail China's, performing yeah. above its weight? China's anomaly in that China... Um, is remarkable in its ability to respond, you know, comprehensively and forcefully to something like a, a pandemic. So China is well placed um, to deal with the very the volatility and the ins, ins, you know the uncertainty of a pandemic and that forceful response. You know, if you're on the ground in China now, um, everyone has a app on their phones that tracks temperature, tracks their geolocation, um, constantly monitors their exposure to hotspots or prior contacts. And to travel, to get on an airplane in China, uh, you have to show your QR, your, your government QR code, which says whether you're green, cleared to travel, which is a real time indicator of the risk of exposure you've had over the last 30 days. The level of technology and tracking is just at such a high level they're so far ahead of the rest of the world that china i believe has moved they're not without risk and it's very possible that china goes back into a period at least regionally of of flare-up of infection but at a national level china's response has been so comprehensive that they are moving post-covid consumers are not fearful of going out to a bar now uh, in the way that they might be in Melbourne or Sydney or Singapore um, or even Hong Kong. And, you know, there's this feeling that we've beaten COVID or we're post-COVID and as long as we stay safe and we take precautions, it won't come back and we can get on with normal life um, that we're not seeing anywhere else except perhaps New Zealand. And I, I don't see it that level of comfort coming back to the other markets that we're in for a good while, because I think it's going to be more of this dance of, you know, a rise in infections than a, you know, moves to, to try to tamp it down and then, you know, stable for a little while. Um, but yeah, China's just, a, it's been remarkable to see how it's navigated this and, and is now in some ways post COVID while they're, but they're, they're on a, they're continually on an extraordinarily high alert for, for flare ups. And when they do happen, the response is immediate and forceful. Yeah. It'd be nice to be in a post COVID world, wouldn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I want to just ask one more question because your perspective here, I think will be really valuable for all the listeners just before we move on to eco spirits, but um uh, and it's kind of a, a maybe a convoluted question. Uh, are there any parts of markets that have recovered, whether it be China or what you're seeing in Singapore or in other, other parts of, I guess, Asia? Um, are there any segments within the hospitality and leisure space that have been slower to recover or suffered more attrition than others? And I guess I, I note, um, you know, my experience within Asia and, and Singapore, I guess specifically, a lot of the more premium bars um, a lot of the acclaimed sort of world top 50 are situated within accommodation properties um, and accommodation has obviously been pretty heavily um, decimated by this. Um, here it's a very different market because, you know, a lot of the more premium hospitality 
um, operations sit outside of accommodation. There are definitely exceptions to that. But um, are there parts of the hospitality market that have been slower to recover or experience more closures or, or, or more challenges than others, whether it be sort of food retail or more casual venues versus the premium ones? Are people spending more money on premium outings and going out less often? Like, is there any insight there that you think is is worth sharing? Yeah, I think the the key insight is that the recovery, even the early go- going, seems to be unevenly distributed and due to some new factors that are at play. You know, one thing we've seen in Singapore and Hong Kong is that alfresco venues have done very well very early on in the recovery. The, the ability to dine or drink outside brings a higher level of comfort. Whatever the baseline level of concern is in a particular city, uh, people are more comfortable dining at an outdoor terrace or on a patio or um, any other sort of outdoor format than they are in a closed uh, environment like a cocktail bar like 28. So venues that are al fresco, there's a great one here called Panamericana from Julian Cerna, uh, another Australian um export, I believe, that's outdoors uh, has come back very well because it's outdoors at the golf course here in, in Sentosa and, and is very, very popular. Um, so those venues are doing better. And the venues that are, are more challenged typically are the late night, the later night, the venue, uh, the bars actually that are the higher energy late night bars, uh, like a 28 Hong Kong Street, where most of the business turns over at 11 p.m., 12 a.m., 1 a.m., 2 a.m., and we get, for instance, the late-night hospitality crowd and things, those venues are slower to recover. People aren't as comfortable in a in an enclosed, smaller cocktail bar environment, especially, you know, in Singapore, you're not allowed to, to stay out late or, or consume alcohol after 10.30 at the moment. Um, so it is unevenly distributed. And, and venues that are more dining-oriented, so bars that have large food programs that people, you know, maybe have dinner at, have recovered better in this, this limited reopening where we're at. Um, and then hotel bars, you're right, Luke, that a, a disproportionate number of of the great bars up here in Singapore and Hong Kong are, are often found in hotels. And some of those hotels have been closed in Singapore. A number, a good proportion of the hotels have been uh, taken over by government for returning residents and things to be in quarantine for, for 14 days. And as a result, some of those properties, simply their FMB is not allowed to reopen um, and, you know, will reopen at a later stage. So yes, certainly some hotel bars have been impacted um, because of the nature of the, the, the use of hotels or restrictions now. I've been real quiet a while, I took a break, now we back He figured he wants figures, the large ones Seen spitters, I could start, but baby, we all gon' need to eat I could really have you beat, but chill Yeah, I stay authentic and real well, We've uh, hinted at it a number of times during the podcast And I feel like we could just keep hinting at it and never ever get there But we, we do want to delve into Eco Spirits Which you touched on earlier around the comments on sustainability uh, Are you able just to give us the skinny on Eco Spirits and uh, why you launched it and what it is? Sure. And it is one of my, the topics I'm most passionate about these days. So, you know, love to have a chance to share more about it. It's, you know, as a distributor, we move a lot, even though we're a small company, we're only about a hundred people uh, across Asia Pacific. We're not, certainly not one of the biggest players in the industry um, by far, but we still do move a lot of liquid and glass around the world. You know, if you're moving craft tequila from Mexico or plantation rum from France or 
you know, uh, a craft gin from London out to Asia Pacific, there's a long, it's a very long supply chain. And, you know, the vast majority of those shipments is, is the weight and density is in the glass that, that, that carries the liquid, the pallets, the cardboard, you know, et cetera. Um, and, and through that exposure to the supply chain, I think back in 2016, we did this sort of holistic review, as I mentioned, of what forces we thought might be shaping the industry and settled on sustainability as one of the top three sort of driving, uh, you know, drivers of change that we would would try to shape our business around. We realized, you know, I, I, in a moment of clarity that uh, there was an enormous amount of cost bound up in moving that packaging, the, the single-use glass packaging, the 700 ml spirit bottle, all the way from Mexico to Auckland or Queenstown or, or Chengdu or Chongqing or Macau. You know, they go, these shipments go through many stops along the way, many points of handling. Uh, and then they arrive at the venue, and if it's a busy venue, take Raffles Hotel here in Singapore in the Singapore Sling, uh, one of the highest volume single cocktail placements in the world today, that bottle of gin, the glass bottle exists for something like 19 minutes behind the bar before it's poured through, uh, and then goes out the back door to waste disposal. And in most markets, you know, Singapore is a very modern, very developed economy, a, a green focus as a government, and yet only about 17% of glass waste is recycled in Singapore. So only 17% of those bottles that, that go out the back door of raffles every evening of service actually end up in recycling. The rest go into the landfills and are there for a long duration as as single-use waste. And so therein lay the the inspiration for EcoSpirits was what if we could solve two simple but very powerful uh, problems in the industry in one go, which was what if we could reduce the delivered cost of spirits? So take out components of the cost of the value chain of a, a bottle of spirit in packaging, in shipping, in handling, uh, and thereby let operators and venues pour perhaps better spirits because they don't have to make some, you know, so many compromises. We all know how challenging it is to manage your profitability as a venue, to fight for those last few cents per nip of, 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 of profit. Um, what if we could remove not just a race to the bottom in the absolute price per ml of spirit, but what if we could remove cost components from, from the value chain of delivering spirits, therefore make higher quality spirits more affordable, um, that would be a powerful proposition. And, and in that same moment of insight, we realized, well, what if we do so, we remove the vast majority of the packaging waste and most of the shipping inefficiency from the system. And that translates directly into carbon footprint reduction and, and waste savings. Um, so that, that began a journey in 2016 when we set up an engineering team to go about developing a closed loop system for premium spirits. So closed loop is the highest level of sustainability. It means total reuse of the, the packaging or transport. Um, the circular economy, there's a lot of talk about the circular economy being, you know, the future. And EcoSpirits is the first closed loop solution for premium spirits in the world. We believe after four years, we've not come across another one. Uh, it eliminates the single-use glass waste from the spirit supply chain and allows venue operators to not only um, save money on the same spirit. If you are a bar, restaurant, or hotel in Australia who over the years has come to love plantation rum, for instance, now that it's available in eco-spirits format in Australia, you're getting the same liquid, but for a 25 or 20% cost reduction 
versus the traditional 700 ml bottle format. And you're eliminating 550 grams of carbon emissions for every bottle that you don't use and send off to the recycling or the landfill. So in short, that's what EcoSpirits is. It's a closed loop technology that allows premium spirits to reach you know, hospitality venues in a low carbon, low waste manner. I might ask a question because I've never worked in hospitality. This comes up quite a bit, but take plantation rum. It's still coming from the source, which I'm assuming is in the Caribbean. Am I right there, Luke? Originally the Caribbean and then then double-aged in France. So it sits in cognac cellars for a few years and then then heads out to Asia Pacific. So, So the liquid you're saying is the same, but it's not what is it exported in bulk into say Australia and then goes through your system? How does it, can you break it down? Just like explain it to me like I'm a, yeah. Sure. There, very fair question. So really the EcoSpirit system is built around two key components. One is the EcoTote and you may have seen images of those, you know, the green uh, 4.5 liter glass vessels with, you know, ergonomic enclosure. Um, that. Ecotote replaces the six-bottle case of spirit. So, it, you know, one filled Ecotote is 4.5 liters of spirit, uh, the same as half of the global nine-liter case measure. Um, and that is the final, uh, that's the, the last mile solution in terms of the closed loop. But as you note, you can't ship Ecototes from the Caribbean to Australia and back for filling. So Ecospirits has created a network that's anchored by what we call Ecoplants, which are small footprint sanitization and refilling units that now come in a fully containerized version form. So imagine a micro bottling facility uh, shrunk down into a single 20 foot shipping container, but that can safely and hygienically process bulk spirit into a Ecotote can also clean and sanitize and sterilize ecototes for refilling. Um, we deploy those eco plants to individual cities, and therefore there they create a closed loop in each market. So we have one operating in Sydney now, which creates a closed loop for Sydney. Um, we operate it in partnership with our friends at PS Soda that have a bottling uh, facility in, in Sydney for their to- sodas and tonics. Uh, we have one in Auckland, we have one in Shanghai, we have one in Hong Kong, we have one in Singapore. And each plant place that we commission an eco plant, you then bring online a closed loop capability within the local market. Uh, and then eco totes, a fleet of eco totes, are then refilled and circulate locally and, and provide all of that packaging and waste savings. Does that make sense? It's a big help, and I, I feel like either I can keep asking dumb questions, uh, but but the other one would be then, how do you go about getting the producers, if I'm getting the nomenclature right, on board, and, and what's the uptake been there? So sure, yeah. I mean, I think we're all in the industry wrestling with these topics of sustainability. So spirits producers around the world have varying degrees of of sustainability initiatives underway, whether that's um, looking at their power sources for running the distillery, looking at overall carbon footprint of their distilleries, um, working on environmental or sustainability certification for their production operations. So, you know, it's not just bars and restaurants that are asking themselves these questions or distributors, producers are doing the same thing. And so in 
approaching spirit partners with this solution in which they can remove and save on packaging cost uh, and uh, labor and, and all of the, the handling and cardboard and pallets and stoppers and labels in, involved in traditional packaging and still reach their premium on-trade consumer c- customer in a safe and hygienic way, uh, but by in a way that allows the, the customer to eliminate almost all of the, the carbon footprint of that spirit, um, is a powerful offering. You know, we're really excited that our friends at Never Never in South Australia uh, have just joined the EcoSpirits Network. I think the first eco-totes of triple juniper gin are, are shipping to venues in Australia uh, this week. And so there you have is a great local distillery in Australia doing wonderful things with the quality of, of their spirit products, as you guys know so well, know well. Um, but now we're available to on-trade customers in, single, in Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney, uh, in, a, in a low-waste, low-carbon format. And it, it's almost the highest level of sustainability. You've got great liquid produced locally and available to a venue uh, in a low low waste format, and you know, compared to the traditional glass bottled price point for on trade, never never is about twenty percent more affordable for venues in eco spirits format in Australia than it is in the traditional glass bottle. And you know, as we all come out of this COVID period, and venues have to find ways to to you know claw back profitability, um, we're finding it's well timed you know to be able to offer someone a savings on a product they already love and and want to use, um, it's it's quite a powerful uh, powerful thing and so um, yeah the response has been great and I'm excited to have our first Australian spirits partner on the system and and I'm sure more to come in the months ahead. Mm. There's also I think um, correct me if I'm wrong in title but the spirits uh, eco spirits forest program. Is that an extension? Can you talk us through that? So the mission of of EcoSpirits as a company, it's a company that's now spun out of a proofing company and is its own technology company, is is simple. It's to end single-use glass in the spirits industry. So do what we can to, to reduce the... 20, there's, uh, I think there'll be about um, 40 billion glass spirit bottles that are produced in 2020 worldwide and consumed. Most of those single use, most of those going to the landfill, it's 20 plus million tons of carbon emissions. So EcoSpirit's company mission is to eliminate as many of those as possible through this technology. But it's very much a sustainability and, and carbon impact focus mission. So we're continually looking for ways to reduce our own carbon impact, but help our venue partners and spirit producers reduce their impact. And so the forest program, which we launched a couple of months ago, is is an example of, like what you said, Luke, an extension, for instance, or enhancement to the sustainability impact of the system. And it's based on a simple, uh, simple principle, one tree, one tote. So for every eco-tote ordered by a hospitality venue in Asia Pacific, EcoSpirits plus the local distributor, say Proof Australia, and the spirit producer, say Never Never, plant one tree in the name of that venue. So if you're a Haynes & Co. in Adelaide uh, using Never Never Triple Juniper Gin on the EcoSpirits format, um, one tree is being planted in an EcoSpirits reforestation area for every ecotote you use. And it therefore further enhances the carbon uh, footprint savings and helps venues offset perhaps their carbon footprint of their power consumption or their other waste in the venues and therefore allowing venues to partner with EcoSpirits and get a more holistic 
sort of sustainability solution. And, and we find people love it. And those trees in the Forester program are planted in Borneo, one of the most endangered areas of rainforest in the world today. But most importantly, they're geotagged and satellite monitored. So there is a tree planted in the name of Haynes & Co. and tagged, geotagged with the Haynes & Co. name uh, in Borneo, it can be tracked, you know, quarter on quarter, year on year. We get carbon reporting for each tree and their carbon sequestration uh, and then share that with venues. So it's a real way to connect the choices that venues make with the impact they can have on their carbon footprint. And that's been that's been powerful. We often tell the story of uh, Cantina OK in Sydney, tiny little laneway bar, uh, partnered with Architecto Tequila and planting eight, 10 or 12 trees every week in the Borneo rainforest as they go through uh, their house port tequila with the Eco Spirits partnership. And, and it's, a, I think, a wonderful way to celebrate the choices venues make to use good spirits, mm. but in a sustainable way. I want to uh, jump in with a question uh, because I have so many, but in terms of that uh, expansion or enhancement, maybe as you mentioned, does this go into off-premise and the consumer world at some point? Do you see that? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. You know, obviously, EcoSpirits at the moment is a is a um, on trade platform. The first phase of EcoSpirits was to help pr provide a closed loop solution for on trade. But we are seeing closed loop and sustainable uh, practices like this come to retailing. I think Nestle has launched recently in Europe the Nestle kiosk, where they uh, provide a closed loop refill station for their own uh, Nestle branded products in some supermarkets. So there is certainly a future for circular in uh, retailing. And we see EcoSpirits as playing a role in that. Um, it's at the moment, the focus is on Entree to make sure that we're able to scale and, and, and further supplement the line of spirits that's available. But, but I, for several years now, believe that there's a, a circular future for retail um, and it's coming. And I, I very much hope EcoSpirits can play a role in that. Yeah, that's great. Uh, Luke, I think you have one as well. Oh, I mean, my question and, and feel free not to add to this. Um, I hope it's not a, 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 um, a poor question to ask, but um, I just keep going to the cost. I mean, the cost associated with, with putting this together um, must be crazy, the number of, you know, the costs that sit behind making this happen. Um, there must be a lot of people, I would imagine, that are coming together to assist with this where it's not necessarily a financial arrangement but more so people that have been sort of bonded together by the, by the cause. Is that, is that a fair assumption? Yeah, I think it's been a four-year development journey and, and we're proud, you know, the EcoSpirits engineering team, of, we have three or four engineers here in Singapore that did all of the heavy lifting of the technical design early on. We filed a patent in 2018 on the Ecotote, so the first, you know, vessel of its type in the world. Um, so essentially three years of engineering and then some very important test clients that have come on board very early on. Raffles Hotel in Singapore signed on to be the global launch client for EcoSpirits. So they made a big bet on a new technology back in 2018 and have been a very high volume collaborative partner to work through the technology. We started to scale it. Four Seasons Hotels has announced an Asia Pacific wide commitment to EcoSpirits. So all of their properties in Asia Pacific as the technology becomes available in each market, including Grain, Grain Bar and Four Seasons in Sydney, 
um, are already switched over to EcoSpirits. Uh, Four Seasons has a mandate that their Asia-Pacific properties have to use low-carbon spirits through EcoSpirits as part of their broader sustainability initiative. So while EcoSpirits certainly has been uh, a big project for Proof & Company, um, it's been a coming, it's the, this, the rapid scaling of it is a coming together of, of a whole bunch of partners, you know, people like Never Never that are really passionate, making wonderful spirits, but willing to trust uh, a new technology like Eco Spirits. Uh, venues, you know, like Raffles or Four Seasons or little venues like OK Cantina OK or, uh, you know, many small venues across Australia. So it's a bit of a movement, which makes us feel great. It is a business, but it's mm -hmm. a bit of a movement in which distillers, uh, distributors, venues come together on one platform to save money you know, hopefully make each other stronger as businesses, but also have a very big impact in, in the carbon uh, footprint of our industry. Yeah, I, I think it's, look, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's highly commendable. I was introduced to this through Jason and, and other members of your team, you know, a, a little while ago. Um, and it's one of those things that I think a lot of people would potentially think about maybe relevant to their own areas but never do anything about. Um, so it just takes people like yourselves to actually get in there and do it. So, um, yeah, I think it's amazing. Yeah, it is. Like, and, and I can't help but observe the convergence of those mandates. So I think, say, for example, you take a city of Sydney and all the hotels within greater Sydney area, which hopefully will be full again one day. But in the meantime, but the, you, know, you know, the city of Sydney is driving a um, sustainable destinations partnership model as an example. And this type of initiative is something that uh, the city is trying to encourage. And then if you're a business within the city, adopting it helps you as a business get towards your target, I would think. I haven't thought stepped myself way through that. But say, for example, if you're Four Seasons, then that's not that's a ticker box, but, like, that is actually – this is actually a proactive step a business could take. And I think that uh, obviously the hotel sector is a, an, a, 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 an obvious one, but surely corporate catering and a whole bunch of other businesses kind of be looking at this through the, the lens of uh, – I don't want to say compliance, but because I hope that – our passion and care for the environment extends beyond compliance but you get the drift there's a opportunity I think for and hopefully maybe having this discussion with you might help people think about how we you know could support or venues or whichever part of the ecosystem you sit in uh, to embrace this type of thinking and work towards you know other other corporate objectives which are highly important at least which is profitability which I think is one of your one of your points. Yeah, I mean, Mike, I'll give you a good example from last year. EcoSpirits partnered with the Wonder Fruit Festival in Thailand, which is uh, a really successful uh, art and, and sort of counterculture festival that, that runs every December in Thailand. And, and in the, the theme of last year's festival was tomorrow, you know, the city, you know, the it was tomorrow and uh, it was all about the future. And um, over one festival weekend, probably the first time, uh, you know, a festival has gone no single use glass waste in the history of the world for spirits. Um, it, uh, you know, I think the festival saved about 3000 glass bottles over, over two or three days in, in one event uh, and brought their spirit costs down overall versus what it was the previous year. But, you know, two, two and a half thousand bottles, 3000 bottles is 
1.5 tons of carbon emissions just from switching their bars over for the weekend uh, and eliminating that glass. And in Thailand, where there's very relatively low recycling rates, the vast majority of that glass from that weekend would have been in in uh, in landfills. And the whole festival had people bringing their own cups. So every cup that was filled with beverage all week was weekend was reused, uh, and there was no throwaway of of, of uh, cups or, or or drinking vessels. Well, what do you see as the future? Uh, opportunities for for eco spirits in general. Where do you see it going? Yeah, I think our our plan is to continue to open the platform up and and let more uh, you know participants in the industry join it. It is a technology. It's not something that we see as as being controlled by proof, and it's just for a certain number of spirits. The you know the future being circular is is I think a pretty settled principle in some of our minds and uh it's why we've we've really begun the process of spinning eco spirits out as a technology and 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 a hardware company um so we see the future of eco spirits is to take this closed loop solution uh to new markets we'll be launching in europe by the end of the year um, to open up the system to more spirit producers we've had a number of local producers in australia approach us uh, as as it's gone live, about maybe joining the system. Um, so the future is is uh, more markets, more cities, uh, and continuing to innovate in the technology, explore things like retail, as you mentioned, Mike, and then continue to open the platform up as it scales and as the technology matures um, to more and more partners who want to use this route to market as a way to improve their own impact on on uh, the environment. just um talking about uh yeah the impact of the media campaign not campaign but just the reporting in in victoria has just seen venue bookings drop off the cliff in in new south wales because people are just yeah, yeah. you know pretty scared and, and um, do you feel like do you feel like new south wales or sydney will go to lockdown or is it they're going to be able to navigate through without it i think we'll listen I, I reckon we'll yeah. navigate through all right like the thing that I think from a region perspective, and I'm a New South Welshman, but and New Zealand less true, but the problem is like Australia can't shut down. Like one city has to take the hit, like economically, people coming in, you know. So, so it has to be New South Wales and Sydney. Uh, what's interesting about the Victorian one that came up is that you know the Victorians have a charter of rights that like is is beyond the constitution. So. This is the whole thing about exercising. So, so even in lockdown, they have a right to exercise within five kilometres of their house. So, which either way, but they've enshrined this in their regulatory landscape for the last ten years. It's been or twelve years, and so from a psyche perspective, like you will not interfere. It's a bit my right to carry guns if it was in the US. It's like a it's my right to be out and about, which is great if you're don't have COVID. Because <laughs> it means that you know they consume more than the average bear, but at the moment it's like being counterproductive, and um, you know, you know that's. There's anything we've learned in Asia is is, and, and I come from North America, you know, lived in the U.S., grew up in Canada, but this anti, this rebellion against COVID 
best practices doesn't end well for anyone who engages mm. in it. And in Asia where populations are, you know, where culturally people are, are more tuned to just simply follow the rules, whatever those are. Um, and if the rules change, you follow the new rules. Um, it's been a great benefit. There's no resistance to mask wearing in Singapore. People know that it's, it's just terrible idea. If you step out without a mask, you'll be grabbed within seconds. You know, someone, a fellow citizen will point at you and say, put it on. And then five minutes later, someone, a police officer or a social distancing ambassador will grab you and you have a $300 fine. And if you're a foreigner, um, you're genuinely putting your work pass at risk. There's a decent chance you could get exported, uh, you know, um, deported. Uh, deported for not wearing a mask. Uh, it's very possible. Um, people that got it a few weeks ago. So that stops any nonsense about non-compliance. Yeah. And I, think, yeah. I think that in New South Wales, because of the history with the lockout and over-regulation, actually, because consumer behaviour is reflecting it. So people are already in masks before being asked to. People are kind of, you know, distancing without being asked to. You know, there's it's just in our behaviour. Uh, and also just... Just frankly, like the the uh, we're used to. If it's bad weather in Sydney, you stay indoors. So it's like, okay, well, it's bad weather because good days will come again. I mean, I saw something that said in the news this week that something like fifty percent of people that were awaiting their COVID test results were were violating the stay-at-home notice. That you know, people who've been tested and know that they're at risk and are waiting for the result back are out and about. Like, that's just madness. That's not the worst of it. There have been a very high incidence of people who actually have positive results not being at home. I think it was like 25% of people who had a positive active case were actually out. Some of them were going to work. Um, it's just the disparity between... Sorry? It's incomprehensible in Asian culture for someone to do that. It's simply not possible. People wouldn't do it, and if they did, you're looking at six months in jail at a minimum. Like, there's no doubt. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you'd be six months in jail at an absolute minimum. Yeah, Annie um, Kingston was saying in Singapore, I think I think it was some of her friends, were door-knocked during the circuit breaker and, and weren't home, and they were on passes and had 24 hours to get out of the country and return oh, home. Sure. Like, it's, it's no that person, cut and dry. No like, yeah, crazy. I'm 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 always the optimist though, so bear that in mind when I say this. But I think that the the behaviour response. There's two things. One is that uh, New South Wales people are kind of seeing the cautionary tale of Victoria, uh, so it's an awareness campaign of what might happen. Um, three things. The second is our compliance. Generally speaking, we're used to being told what to do and doing it, and then. Um, yeah, I, I think thirdly, like there's just, um, you know, that oh, I've lost my third, my train of thought on the third point. But yeah, I, I think that we'll we'll navigate. Oh, the third, sorry, the third point is that the uh, New South Wales health health system runs different to Victoria, so there's a very um, top down um, in one central area practice for the whole state. Whereas in New South Wales, you have local area health practices, so contact tracing and uh, is is better essentially, you know, the ability to sort of understand how the trans community transition might, transmission might help um, is better. So I think there's the three things that are kind of. I mean, Australia came through the first wave relatively well. There's hope that it can do so with the second wave. It's just about 
you know, not letting it get out of control. And, and you know, there are the, the healthcare system is resilient. There's lots of positives for Australia in this, I believe. Yeah. Sometimes it feels like home. Sometimes you feel all alone. See the lines on you. They have grown. Sometimes you feel so, um, Paul. Thanks so much for your time. We, we're going to end this podcast with our standard wrap. And uh, I say standard because this is not the, the COVID wrap, which was modified for another time. We're, we're looking beyond that now. So our five favourite questions, a favourite book that you've read recently or a podcast you listen to? Um, uh, oh, you guys may have to edit this one out. I didn't prepare the, the podcast book question. So do I, do I need to answer all five? I prepared a few of them. That's fine. Uh, you is can it, just say you listen to this one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's the uh, last book you read? What was the most recent book that you read? Um, most recent book was uh, uh, You Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins, the uh, endurance runner. You know, one of the things that I love to do is run. Um, he's a Navy SEAL, ex-Navy SEAL in the US, very famous for mental toughness. So, mm. As I turned 40 a couple of years ago, I got back to running. I grew up running in Canada. And so um, marathon running is my passion outside of work these days. And uh, it's a book on mental toughness from one of the, the great, uh, great endurance athletes in the world today and a former Navy SEAL. And uh, so it's called Can't Hurt Me. And it's about mental toughness in adversity, which, which isn't perhaps uh, inappropriate at the times we're all facing, uh, you know, in 2020. So I use it for my running, but it's probably has some relevance for COVID. Oh, we found the, the, the true source of your power now. We'll all, we'll all yeah. hack your system, but that's a good answer. <laughs> and uh, all right, well, in that vein, an album or artist that you could be listening now, or if not, one you've recently listened to? Yeah. Well, I don't have a specific album, but I have a, uh, a favorite right now. I'm missing, my wife Sabrina and I are, my favorite place in the world is Ibiza. Um, you know, we've been going for years every summer, every July for the last five or six years. Um, it's been our ritual that the middle of July, we spend a week there together. Um, and there's something about Ibiza, and you know how much music is woven through that island, um, that just is a very, very special place. So my favorite place in the world is Dalvila, the old town, the UNESCO heritage site in, in Ibiza. And I am deeply missing this year for the first time in years, the Ibizan soundtrack to the summer, you know, sort of relaxed, loungy, uh, ambient tropical house that you get at every beach club or restaurant there. And uh, hopefully next year we'll all be traveling in and back at it and be able to, to be on the beach and, and hear some good tunes in Ibiza again. If you were on that beach or not, what drink would you be drinking or what are you drinking now that might take you there? Um, well, I'm a mart- I love martinis. We've been on, you know, martini trend since At- Atlas, you know, you know, a few years ago. And I think uh, I had one this week to celebrate. So I'll mention it. The uh, you know, triple juniper, never, never gin martini um, in celebration of uh, never, never being come available in Australia and no in a low carbon format has been my drink. So last drink I had, I had one yesterday to celebrate because uh, uh, it's now available in, in Australia in eco-tote form. And Luke, uh, as a side note, aren't we happy that we're talking about a martini as opposed to seed lip? Because seed lip just kept coming up nonstop. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is nice. So never, never, if you're listening. Um, so, and, and then um, Paul, back to you. Uh, 
So uh, let me help to phrase this one. So curveball could be your favourite venue. Uh, let's do it this way. You can't mention one you've had an involvement with. Fair. Um, I thought about this and I think, you know, my given the year we're all having, I think uh, it's only fair to have a soft spot for venues that are opening into the pandemic. I think, you know, all of us are struggling to navigate. How do you take a venue like 28 that's been around through 10 years for 10 years and navigate through this safely? But our friends and peers in the industry that have had a dream they've been working on for a year or a year and a half and were into construction in January um, are in a special class in their own. Uh, and there's two great venues here in Singapore that opened into the pandemic, which I think give them uh, some stripes that few other venues in the world will ever have. One is a, a Brooklyn pizza joint called Lucali uh, by an old friend of ours, Gibran. Um, it's Beyonce's favorite pizza joint in Brooklyn, uh, wood-fired pizza, relaxed hospitality, um, great staff. Um, and they just opened two weeks ago, right in the depths of the pandemic. They were starting construction in January. Uh, so if you want a great pizza in Singapore, if anyone does get up here or if you're listening from Singapore, they've just opened unpretentious, fun Brooklyn pizza in Singapore, which is hard to find. Uh, and then the second is a new bar that opened four weeks ago. It's called Sago House. So it's in a little uh, laneway here in Singapore. Jay Gray, some of you may, may know who... Uh, came out of Australia. Desiree, an old, you know, uh, one of our first team members at 28 Hong Kong Street. Uh, she and Jay went out on their own. Jay was the monkey shoulder ambassador for Southeast Asia. They've just opened a bar that they literally built themselves. Essentially, everything in the interior has been built by Jay and Desiree and their friend George. Um, so here is a really cool little venue, um, wonderful little cocktail spot. Um, opening right into the heart of the storm. Uh, and I think you'll find Bobby Carey there twice a week these days uh, in the evening. So if you want to try something new in Singapore, check out Sago House. Just opened right into the pandemic. And I think we all we all owe these venues that are they're opening the doors at this time some extra support. That's a fantastic answer. And continuing on in that vein of positivity, I'm very interested in your response to our last question, which is, who in the industry are you most inspired by and why? Yeah, I thought about this one and it's not one person, but, you know, my life has been, I think you can tell from the conversation of this last hour, sort of quite deeply but unexpectedly shaped by this modern era of beverage that, that has sort of changed the industry we all find ourselves in. And I experienced, you know, unexpectedly stumbled on it in New York City in 2001 and and looking back now it changed the course of my life life forever and um, so I you know I really look up to those that laid the groundwork for this this era that's now 20 years old so if you look at you know I saw this week that Black Pearl turned 18 years old yeah, uh, that's that, no small thing uh, that means that Black Pearl was in the very, very early set of pioneers in this entire modern era. People like Sasha Petrasky in New York, the first cocktail bar I, I ever went to. Um, but those that have taken this, 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 uh, you know, new approach, elevated approach to craft and drinks and spread it, you know, first in their home markets, then around the world. Um, those pioneers are what I think all of us at Proof and a lot of us in the modern cocktail industry owe our current careers to. So, um, if there's someone that I look up to most, it has to be the people that have shaped the era that, that we've flourished in. Well, 
Paul, we've really enjoyed this uh, podcast. Uh, I think that in amongst all those things you've talked about, really it's remarkable what you've conceived of. I think Luke would agree with Eco Spirits and I imagine that and I hope that like COVID actually is an accelerant of that uh, mm. initiative. Yeah, and also obviously wish you the best with uh, Proof and its general business and Proof and COVID. But um, it's been a fantastic uh, hour and a bit and I, I really hope that uh, – anyone listening to this kind of sees and embraces in the same way that you have the opportunity presented by the pandemic to go ahead and create positive social change. Great. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for the time. It's always wonderful to share some of the stories from up here in Asia. And, <laughs> and as I said, we've long looked up to the Australian hospitality industry and, and draw inspiration from it. So if anything we've shared today can be a bit of inspiration as Australia goes through a pretty challenging time, well then um, we're giving just a little bit back. So thank you for the time. Thank you. Right.